WWDD, what would Danny do? Styles had an idea, an awful idea. Styles had a wonderful, awful idea. Gabriel, I will put every ounce of my creative soul, every moment into all of my cinematic life into this shot of this button. Just tell me what you want to do. Just being able to find so much joy in Teen Wolf. Welcome to Return to Beacon Hills, a Teen Wolf Rewatch podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Will Wallace, and I'm joined by... Calissa Mullis. And Kate Colvin. Every week we'll be watching and talking about the hit MTV series one episode at a time. And this week we're talking about season three, episode five, Frayed. If you're watching Teen Wolf for the first time and you're worried about spoilers, have no fear. This podcast is broken up into two sections, Alpha and Beta. The beta section is for first-timers who are just now finding this awesome series and don't want to be spoiled about what's to come. The second section, Alpha, is where we go full spoilers and talk about not just the current episode, but the entire Teen Wolf series as well as its place in the fandom. In the show notes of your podcast app of choice, you'll find time codes for the Alpha and Beta sections. If you'd like to support the show, you can find us on Patreon at RTBH Podcast. There, our Wolfie patrons will gain access to awesome exclusives like early access to episodes, full moon AMAs, the Beacon Hills Movie Club, where we watch and provide commentary for movies starring the amazing cast of Teen Wolf and featuring the work of our talented crew, as well as guest video interviews and a monthly watch party. So head on over to patreon.com forward slash RTBH podcast and join the pack. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RTBH podcast and Tumblr and TikTok at return to Beacon Hills. If you'd like to ask us questions or offer suggestions for future topics to discuss, you can email us at returntobeaconhills at gmail.com. Frayed was written by Angela Harvey and directed by Robert Hall. In it, Scott, Stiles, Isaac, and Boyd bank on safety in numbers when they endure an hours-long bus ride to a cross-country meet. Stiles and a severely injured Scott use the opportunity to keep an eye on Ethan, who cozies up to Danny. Allison and Lydia follow the bus by car. In a series of flashbacks, we find out about a fight with the Alpha Pack, among other events. The fight seemed to have two casualties, Derek and Ennis, but as events unfold with Deaton and Morel, it turns out that might not be the case. Meanwhile, Peter and Cora are forced to work together, and Ms. Blake gets a shocking surprise in the high school parking lot. Our favorite quote this week comes from an exchange between Lydia and Aiden. Lydia says, What do you think you're doing? Aiden asks, what do you mean? Lydia says, I mean your hands. Aiden replies that they're on your waist. Lydia says, I know. What am I, a nun? Put them somewhere useful. I love that bit. I love it so much. (laughs) It's great. Yay, sex positivity. We have a couple honorable mention quotes as well. The first comes from Scott saying, there's safety in numbers. And Styles replies, yeah, well, there's also death in numbers, okay? It's called a massacre. (laughs) The logic is sound, man. (laughs) The next is between Allison and Lydia. Allison says, I'm getting too close, aren't I? Lydia replies, that depends. Are you just following the bus or are you planning on mounting it at some point? I feel like there might actually be some weird Cars fan fiction on the internet that describes something very similar to that. Oh, I'm sure there is. Well, 34 (laughs) guys. Yep. Exactly. And finally, we have Style saying, Ethan keeps checking his phone like every five minutes. It's like he's waiting for someone, you know, like a message or a signal of some kind. I don't know. Something evil, though. I can tell. I have a very perceptive eye for evil. You know that. (laughs) It's very true. Not wrong. The episode begins on a school bus as the cross-country team heads to a meet. Isaac tries to get Boyd to stop thinking about what he's thinking about, but Boyd is enraged at Ethan, one of the Alpha Twins. Ethan sits next to Danny, who asks why Ethan keeps checking his phone for a text. 
Is that your way of asking whether he has a boyfriend? You'll know Danny's smooth. Very. Styles startles Scott out of a flashback as he helps Scott go over vocabulary words, starting with anachronism and incongruent. Side note, Girl Acronism is one of the best songs ever, I've got to say. Also, the best thing about 3A is how good Dylan O'Brien looks this entire season. So good. Is it the hair? It's the hair. Styles thinks they shouldn't have come on this trip. Can't really argue with him there. Scott says there's safety in numbers. Couldn't they have just stayed together at home, though? And then, you know, they would have all been together, including Allison and Lydia. That makes a lot of sense. It does. But what Styles really wants to talk about are the supernatural goings-on. The Duroc, the Alpha Pack, Scott's wound that won't heal. He could have at least bandaged it, no? Yeah, you can do that. Some human medical techniques still work. There's actually another use of a vocab word here in the original script. There's not a lot of changes between script to screen this episode, but one of them is when Scott says, I'm okay, Styles replies, if you're okay, then stop being so intransigent and let me see it. I did wonder why he didn't use that word (laughs) in the scene because the others kind of apply specifically to the situation. Like they they talk about incongruent in context and then Styles also mentions Duroc. And I was like, I'm really surprised that Styles isn't saying you're being so intransigent about this, but hey, turns out he originally was going to and they just had to, I assume, cut it for time. The other thing that's going on in the supernatural world is the death of Derek Hale. <gasps> what? Um, no, um, again? Uh... <laughs> and he's died twice. Uh, at the same time, Allison and Lydia follow the bus in Allison's car. Allison recounts to Lydia that this all started when Scott came knocking on her door, asking about an arrow he found at the school, which he deduced was hers. Allison asked how he knew they weren't from the archery team. Scott said they don't have an archery team. And they wouldn't use razor-sharp arrows. BHHS has enough lawsuits on its hands as it is. You know that. That's true. Slappy's family's lawsuit has drained that school. (laughs) Ah, we all knew it was coming. There it is. Scott added that he looked it up, and this arrow had military-grade, armor-piercing, titanium arrowheads. Thank you, Scott. Very good. He's so cute in the scene. He is. I like it when Scott does the work of actually like, you know. Work. Work of like researching and <laughs> Googling something. Yes. Oh, I, I, I'm sorry, inquiry it. Scott tried to warn Allison against getting caught up in the fight with the Alpha Pack. Allison said she could handle Scott and he had superhuman strength too. Yeah, let's get a rock climbing wall and she'll show you. Did you not notice how crazy I went last season? I can totally kick your ass, Scott. Solid point. Or stab it a lot. There was another line here in the original script where Allison says, is that what you want to tell me to stay out of it? And Scott replied, in the episode, he just says no, but in the script, he says no. And I'm not saying you were definitely there. I'm just saying if you were, it probably wouldn't be a good idea if you were there. That does kind of make sense with the conversation they have later after she helps Scott recover, where he says something like, remember that thing that I said you might have done, but shouldn't do, you know, something like that, where they like, Mm -hmm. it's playfully vague. I feel like that was originally going to be a reference to that line. Scott and Allison argued back and forth with Scott listing the Alpha Pack's assets and Allison listing her own, including that she's smarter than him. I mean, she's not wrong per se. (laughs) That's why he doesn't argue that back. He knows it. (laughs) 
That's true. He he knows where his strengths lie and, and where there's, you know, maybe room for growth. The two tussled until Scott subdued her. I don't love this scene. I like this setup a lot, but it bothers me that Allison doesn't cheat. Hmm. Okay, think back to the rock climbing wall scene that you mentioned, Will. Allison kicks Scott off the wall. And I love that bit. It's so Allison. She seems sweet. They're flirty. They're having a good time. But she's got a sharp side. She knows she doesn't have Scott's supernatural strength or agility, so she does what she has to do to keep up. Yet, in this scene, she doesn't do anything underhanded or devious. She plays it fair. It's kind of less interesting, and it feels incongruous. Ah, what you did there? I see it. (laughs) I feel like when they were having that moment during the struggle where it was a little bit cute and flirtatious, Allison should have kicked him in the balls. Like that would have felt so right for Allison, but instead she played by the rules and of course she lost. He's a goddamn werewolf. Yep. Later that day, after encountering Deucalion in the elevator of the Argent's apartment building, Scott went to Derek's loft. Along with Peter, Cora, and Boyd, they discussed taking on the Alpha Pack. Okay, why did Derek send Isaac away, but Cora and Boyd are still here? Maybe they're only here for this mission? But I took it that the whole point of sending Isaac away was to cut him off from Derek so that Derek couldn't be forced to hurt him. How does that not apply to Cora and Boyd? Especially if they are going to take on the Alpha Pack. I mean, is the point just that Isaac couldn't live there, but he could still have contact with Derek? That seems like weird logic. And Cora's even still living with Derek. It just doesn't totally make sense to me. Another question, just to clarify, after they left the bank layer the alpha pack moved into the same building as the argents is that what they're telling me i think they probably were already in that building i don't think they were actually living at the bank vault they have vaults all over town that's the teenager vault oh and, boy yeah <laughs> back in the present coach finstock berates one of the teenagers jared who is always carsick and warns him not to throw up. Coach notices Scott also looking sick. I'm just hungover, Coach. It's fine. Not carsick. (laughs) Scott notices Ethan listening to them. Do it. Say something weird. (laughs) I know, right? That would be like the best thing about hanging around with the werewolves. You just say something totally weird, throw them off. Mm -hmm. Jackson got in season one when he was loudly eating apples and stuff to mess with Scott. Also Gerard in- Oh, right, uh, yes, yes. Actually, I think both of those instances were in season two. So Styles asks about the two ticking time bombs sitting near him, referring to Isaac and Boyd. Hey, I can hear you too, mother Everyone on this bus has super hearing. There's a longer exchange here in the script. Styles actually says, does this mean you're their alpha now because of Derek? Scott replies, I'm not anyone's alpha. Styles says, since you're looking kind of half dead too, I'm gonna hope you're right. Whoa. That, that's really interesting because, you know, when we talked to Jeff, he said that if someone becomes an alpha, they have to do it by killing an alpha. There's no inheriting the alpha hood, which surprised me. I mean, my personal headcanon had been that Laura inherited the alpha hood from, from her mother after the fire. But this Sounds like at least that Styles's logic is that that is how it would work, that it would kind of fall to you yeah. if you're in that position. Mm-hmm. I like that. I wish it had stayed in. I'm guessing they cut it probably for time, you know, and, and pace. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it just doesn't really make sense that if an alpha dies in a pack, 
then they're like, all right, we got to draw straws. And okay, Carlos, you're going to be the new alpha. Now we need to find a morally questionable bad alpha for you to kill so we are not now the bad guys. Right, because that would mean anytime an alpha dies not at the hands of another alpha, that alphahood just blinks out of the world, right? Which would mean to me that if werewolves and particularly alphas, they would their numbers would dwindle so quickly. Yeah, it's a violent world. People die like all the time, and not you necessarily know. of murder. No, yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But it, it just does bring up you have to kill someone in order to be an alpha, and that's the only way. Because then it's like, well, what happens if we run out of bad alphas? You know, it's or like, alphas. well, or, or alphas. Period. You're, what you if know? they're just all god? Are they just right? So no it, more it, werewolves it, ever. It it feels like, pa- especially through bloodline, passing it needs, it should have been a thing. In the past, the conversation continued about taking on the alpha pack. I really like Boyd's vest. Here. It's a good look. Boyd looking handsome as always. Mm-hmm. Scott complained that just once they should come up with a plan that doesn't involve killing everyone. Peter accused him of being blandly moral. And for once, I agree with Peter. <laughs> Wait, when even was the last time they came up with a plan that centered on murders? I mean, Derek was planning to kill Jackson. But that only lasted until Scott said they were going to work together, and that meant not killing Jackson. Derek immediately agreed. I mean, they did end up killing Jackson, kind of, temporarily, and with his permission. But that was only after a shitload of other people died because they didn't just plan to murder him. Oh, so you mean a plan involving Scott? Right. This is the first time he's been like, Scott, help us with this murder plan. And I feel like Scott's reaction makes it sound like, again, again, you ask me about the murder plan. Yes, I I think you're right. In the present, Lydia realizes that Allison invited her on the road trip so she could keep an eye on Lydia as well as Scott and the others, all because of Lydia's association with Aiden. Lydia insists there's nothing going on between them, but her flashback suggests otherwise. And I love that bit. It's the bit that we chose the uh, favorite quote from. Yes, quite good. On the bus, Scott sees Boyd gearing up for a fight. It's because they see Ethan with Danny. That's our national treasure. <laughs> yeah, it was Aiden chose Lydia to make Scott, you know, annoyed and worried. And then they, Ethan chose Danny, national treasure. Because, you know, Scott cares for them both deeply. Mm-hmm. deeply. National treasure, Danny Mahialani. Yeah. In a flashback to Scott's moment with Decalion, the latter says that he would have to be blind, deaf, and a quadroplegic for Scott to be a threat. I feel like that's somewhat offensive. Yeah, I think it is. Right? It felt kind of offensive. Definitely. Scott continues to have flashbacks to the fight. I feel like they choreographed this like a dance scene. It does feel very balletic. The script actually says for one of the fight scenes, bodies flit past, whirling about in a violent ballet of slashing claws. Nice. Nailed it, Will. Yeah. Derek fell several stories. Long live the king. Uh, Derek actually means king. Oh, yeah. It's like like the ruler of... Ruler of the people. Ruler of the people. At least that's what the meme on Tumblr said. I looked it up before. It's a thing. Hmm. It looks like he's going to flip Scott off as he falls or throw a peace sign, which we know Tyler Hecklin loves to do. (laughs) (laughs) He's probably dead. I don't need to check. Bye. Oh, I'm just so sleepy now. I gotta go. His eyes are cracked open, so... When Cor and Peter went back to the abandoned mall to look for Derek's body, they discussed not being able to trust each other anymore. So they thought he was dead. The, the group thought he was dead. Did they just leave his body there? You know they did. Why? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, they were they were being chased off or something, right? I mean, if they were wounded and had to regroup, 
I guess I could understand them being like, we'll just have to come back for the body. But it seems weird that then everyone but Peter and Cora were just like, okay, bye. <laughs> they were like, y'all got it. You'll, you'll go get the body, right? I think this exchange between Peter and Cora is interesting. And I'd really like to know what the relationship was like when she was a child. Same with Peter and Derek's relationship. Peter doesn't seem like the kind of person who has time for children. He's just like, uh, go, go children somewhere else. My headcanon is that Cora was his favorite. Yeah, I feel like Cora was probably his favorite too. Because I feel like she was probably a beast at like seven. I could see that. Whereas I feel like Derek definitely went through some awkward years. Definitely. Derek has, I went through awkward years energy. Aww. Where's the lie? There is no I say that as someone who went through many awkward years. (laughs) So easy for Kate to like prey on him. Yeah. Yeah, probably. Not only is Derek's body gone, but Ennis's body isn't there either. And he fell with Derek. In a flashback, Deaton tells Scott to try being a leader among the werewolves. In the present, Scott puts that advice to use and convinces Boyd to hold back from attacking Ethan and give Scott a chance to come up with another solution. Styles says it's good he solved that problem because they have another problem too. Ethan checking his phone. Styles doesn't know what he's waiting for, but it's got to be something evil. Styles has a perceptive eye for evil. It's true. Scott and Styles also don't like Ethan sitting with Danny. Danny said he was going to sex me once. We have to protect him at all costs. <laughs> Styles texts Danny to try to get Danny to ask why Ethan keeps checking his phone. Danny is not enthusiastic about this plan. Oh, you could actually see Danny's previous text reply. It was just a bubble. I mean, <laughs> makes sense to me. So he just typed one space and then sent yeah. like, I'm yeah. not even going to dignify that with words. Yeah, but Styles is very persistent. Do it, Daniel. Or maybe he's a Danilo. I have an uncle Danilo. It's like how I always used to call you William to make a point before I finally found out that Will is short for Wilfred, and it's not even a shortening of your first name. I know. Crazy. So crazy. He sends Danny a barrage of texts. Oh, Danny's going to throw his phone. Uh, He doesn't send nearly as many in the original script. After Styles sends the text, it's important, please. Uh, He waits for Danny's response and nothing comes. Standing up at his seat, he tries to see what they're doing. All you can see, however, are the backs of heads. Danny's phone vibrates with a new message from Styles. Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. This finally catches <laughs> Ethan's attention. Interesting. So it's just the one other one he sends. Yeah. Oh, that is interesting. In the actual scene, Styles just keeps sending them texts faster and faster and faster. Yep. I'm texting all the four-letter words I know as fast as I can. Ethan asks him what's going on. My phone seems to be malfunctioning. And I hate Styles. (laughs) This actually gives Danny an in to ask Ethan the same thing. They glance over at Scott and Styles, who unsubtly sink low in their seats. This reminds me when Michael Bluth in Arrested Development is spying on someone and he ducks down in his seat not to be seen, but he's sitting in the stair car. Such subtlety. Scott and Styles finally get their answer. Ethan is waiting for news about Ennis, who isn't actually dead. Wait, does that mean we left Derek for dead? I wish that Styles had been like, you guys checked, right? Like, just to be clear, because, you know, we've made this mistake before. Okay, why did Ethan go on the trip? Probably to keep an eye on Scott and them? What did he think they were going to do that would be relevant or worth keeping an eye on? I don't know, just keeping an eye on the enemy, I guess. If you say so. At the animal clinic... The bell on the door dings. Dean calls out that it's open. Why does he say that? The ding comes when someone comes through the door already, which means it's open. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, not a, it's not a doorbell. It's yeah. one of those jingles when the, when the door opens. 
I didn't yeah. even notice until you said that. Well, it turns out it's Kali, Aiden, and Ms. Morell bringing in a very injured Ennis. Deaton tries to make them leave, refusing to break the mountain ash seal. Don't make me get the squirt bottle. <laughs> so maybe it was just me, but I didn't actually pick up on the supernatural thing that happens here until I saw it noted in the script with Kali. It says, the red glow abruptly vanishes from her eyes like a candle's flame blown out. Kali blinks in shock as if pushed by an unseen force. Yeah, I, I didn't notice her eyes stopped glowing suddenly. I, I do remember her having this stunned reaction when he says, not here, you won't. And yeah. there's clearly like a, a, a realization of like of the mountain ash thing. But yeah, I didn't notice her eyes. Yeah, me either. And if you do look at the scene, it does, you kind of see like, she seems like a bit taken aback that, yeah, I kind of just interpreted just where it's like, I can't believe this, but just standing up to me. But it's right. uh, <laughs> right. like right. with the eye thing, you can definitely see it more as like, it seems like something caused that, which now I really want to know what it was. Yeah, me because too. Because we never found like Deaton in any way having a power like that. Yeah, yeah, that is interesting. Ms. Morell finally convinces him by saying that if Ennis dies, they'll take it out on Scott. They'll kill him. Aren't they trying to do that anyway? Yeah, it's not really much of a threat then. On the bus, Coach Finstock worries that Jared will throw up, but he claims that nothing will stop them from making the meet on time. Jared was a walk-on contest winner, actually. Oh, well, that's season. fun. Very cool. Mm -hmm. With Scott getting worse and Deaton MIA, Styles tries to convince Finstock to stop the bus, but Finstock refuses. Styles decides to call Lydia and Allison, revealing that he knew they'd been following them for hours. He looks so disappointed with them. <laughs> he does. Following skills are terrible. I love Lydia's delivery when she's on the phone and realizes the jig is up. <laughs> it's great. The pathetic bit was not in the original script, but I love it so much. Oh, where he, he basically says their following skills are pathetic. Yeah. That's, that's great. Funny. Styles tells them that Scott's getting worse and the blood is turning black. Allison urges Styles to reason with Finstock, prompting Styles to demand whether she's met the guy. Has Allison ever had any scenes with Coach? I don't think she's ever had a scene with him. That's mm. crazy to think about. Yeah. <laughs> or crazy that she doesn't have to think about, clearly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Styles tries facing off with Finstock, and it does not go well. This might be the best scene in the episode. So there's a few things I wanted to note from the script. One of Styles' lines that gets interrupted is, this is false imprisonment. Which you get to hear him just barely say this is bah, and then it cuts away, like it he gets cut off, but that yeah. was going to be signed about this is false imprisonment. And also uh, it says, well, while everyone around covers their ears, Styles takes the full blast until the whistle drops from Coach's lips. Now we have him blowing the whistle in his face, but we don't get everyone else like covering their ears. And I just thought that was kind of funny. Yeah, yeah I feel like we should have, especially the werewolves, because they have extra sensitive hearing. That's right. true. Didn't think about that. Then Styles' attention turns to Jared. Styles had an idea, an awful idea. Styles had a wonderful, awful idea. I love his smile when he sits down next to Jared. It is truly maniacal. Very Jim Carrey here. Speaking of the Grinch, his plan works. He manages to get Jared to throw up, forcing the bus to stop. Really want to know what Styles said to him. He described something so disgusting. No, no. He just said, let me introduce you to my friend, Scott. Come over here. Pull up your shirt, Scott. <laughs> oh, it's like a Cthulhu with abs. <laughs> Allison and Lydia meet up with them. Lydia looks so cute. I like her jacket a lot. 
There's a lot of low angles in this episode, I'm noticing. Rob likes those low angles. Lydia hypothesizes that Scott's failure to heal could have a psychological cause. Styles asks if she means psychosomatic, and she corrects him, saying she means somatoformic, psychological symptoms from a psychogenic cause. So I think somatoform disorders are a subset of psychosomatic illness. Also, psychogenic cause is redundant because psychogenic means having a psychological cause. So it's like from a cause of having a psychological cause. I believe it when you say those words. <laughs> Styles takes this to mean that Scott's not letting himself heal because Derek died. I'm sorry. No, no, I don't believe that. Sorry. I, I get that psychogenesis makes the most sense here, but I just don't buy Scott being like, not Derek. I won't let myself heal. Deep, deep, deep down. He knows he has a little shit to Derek and he deserves this. It's just you know, so deep down. Lydia suggests they stitch Scott up because it's possible he just needs to believe it's healing. Luckily, Allison's dad taught her how to stitch up a wound. No surprise there. Styles warns that she'll need to be quick because the bus could leave. Are they really going to leave without Scott and Styles? I mean, coach is crazy. Under pressure, Allison struggles to thread the needle. She imagines her mother berating her for her weakness. I love this scene. Yeah, it's a good one. I remember breaking the scene in the writer's room. Jeff was talking about trying to find the visual and then having the idea to get Edie to come back to actually talk to Allison. Well, it works fantastically. Yeah. It's great. Allison continues to struggle. Wait, we can't say that on MTV. It looked like she was on the edge of that. There was a strong... Well, she's trying to thread the needle. Yeah, you could see it. <laughs> Finally... With her mother's unrelenting voice in her head, Allison focuses enough to thread the needle. Oh, it reminds me of Old Yeller when they're sewing up Old Yeller after the boar attack. I love the shot where the camera turns as she's finally taking in that deep breath. So good. Do you guys notice that Scott has alpha eyes in this? Oh yeah, he does that. for a split second and Allison sees it. And then at the end of the episode, when they're talking, I think they're getting back on the bus or back on the road. She's like looking at him and he's like, he kind of gives her a look. What are you looking at? Look. And she's like, oh, nothing. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was just, you know, them being in love. <laughs> it was a love thing. No, it's more than love. It's uh, it's an alpha thing, not a love thing. <laughs> alpha love. It's funny because she actually says, when he says what? He, she's like, oh, I was just looking at your eyes. And even with that line, I was like, yeah, she's looking <laughs> at his eyes. She's like gazing lovingly in his eyes. I get yeah. it. I see what we're doing here, guys. Cut print. Let's go. We got it. No, it's subtle foreshadowing. This is the second time. I wonder what happens when there's a third. That's a pattern. When she's finished, Allison is horrified to find that she can't wake Scott up. Punch him. Yeah, that's what does it. That's what they do to Derek. Let's just do a gender swap to Snow White, which is also what Style should have done with Derek. Aww. Aww. <laughs> Scott flashes back to the fight when he saw Derek fall. It doesn't look like they're being chased away. Yeah. yeah. Scott wakes and finds that Allison has stitched him up. And my mom helped. What? What? <laughs> In another flashback, Scott went to leave the house and Isaac asked him where he was going. Ugh, no, Melissa McCall in this episode, I'm just realizing, and I don't like it. I know. Scott said he was just going to grab some food. Isaac asked what he was getting and Scott unconvincingly said, uh, Mexican. Isaac said he loved Mexican. I know you do, baby. We finally get Isaac riding on the back of Scott's bike. Yay! Very cute. <laughs> so cute. They arrived instead at the abandoned mall. Scott wants to meet with the Alpha Pack and discuss a truce. But we can get dinner on the way back, right? He's hungry now. They both are. In the <laughs> present, Allison decides to leave the car rather than leave Scott's side. In the past, Scott and Isaac found Derek, Cora, and Boyd had also showed up, but not for peace talks. Okay, guys. 
how did they decide to meet here? Uh, I don't know, because Jennifer Dunn from the locations department showed us a picture of an empty mall and was like, we can go here. And we we're like, oh, yeah, we should totally go there. That's probably why. Uh, it's a cool place. But like, was there a Facebook invite? Like, <laughs> does everyone want to come to Rumble? I think the original plan was to attack them at the apartment building. Oh, yeah. I'm surprised Scott hasn't suggested an alternative plan to the group. You'd think he'd be worried about the Alpha Pack intentionally choosing a place close to Allison and Chris. Is this what the penthouse looks like in that apartment building? Yeah, this is the actual penthouse. It's a fixer upper. Yeah, I just, I really want to know. Did at some point Scott say that he had like contacted Deucalion to meet like supposedly one-on-one? Because that's what it feels like is yeah. happening. I, I think that's what they're saying. I think they're saying that Deaton had said the thing about leading them and Scott was like, oh, I'll do like a peace summit. I just won't tell anybody about it because in the past it's worked out really well when we didn't tell each other our plans to take on the big bad or to address that issue. So I'm going to repeat that same strategy. It'll be great. Yeah, it, it does feel like that's that maybe that was the intention with this scene where it's like Scott has done a secret thing to try and solve the problem but then everyone figured it out but in this scene we're not given enough i guess information visually from the characters where you know director shows up crossing his arms where he's like scott or <laughs> you know you know where it's like it doesn't feel like there's a moment where someone should have been like you know where he the bad version is scott's like how'd you know i was here it's like oh your password's allison or so so it's <laughs> like they, they get that he went around them but they still figured it out it just feels like that they all just showed up at a place like it either feels like that's what they're going for or we're missing a scene yeah i mean i i, I definitely think it feels like they're saying scott went behind their backs because he couldn't trust them enough to tell them what they were doing or what he was planning to do. The problem is even if they guessed that he was going to go behind their backs, how on earth would they know that that's where he was going to go? Yeah, it's it it feels like we're missing connective tissue. Also, he's a werewolf, can he not tell that there are like so many heartbeats inside this building? In the scene, Derek said he was only after Deucalion. In the script, when Scott says, "You knew I'd do this," Derek replies, I need your help, Scott, which we don't have him saying he needs him, his help in the episode. Interesting. Yeah. Which he probably just learned to stop asking Scott for help. <laughs> yeah, it's solid. Yeah. yeah. But Decalion asked how a blind man could have found his way there all on his own. Again, sounds kind of offensive. Definitely a bit. Yes. Kali dropped down from a higher level, caused scratching on the way down. She looks like a cat. Yes, she does. The Alpha Twins joined the fray as well. Why are they always shirtless? Is it to make the fisting easier? Probably. And interestingly, they're all wearing contacts in these scenes. They're not doing the digital eye replacement we've normally done. Hmm. I still am just stuck on not understanding why Derek sent Isaac away just to show up and fight with Boyd. I mean, he didn't know Isaac would be there, but what about Boyd? I don't know. What about? In the present, Scott helps pull Isaac off of Ethan when Isaac decides to beat him up. Coach is like, wait, you're fine after like two seconds? Guess that's why he doesn't get punished. Yes, he's yeah. piecing it all together. Peter and Cora go to Deaton's and find the Alphas already there. It smells like them. Also, this is the trashy vehicle. Of course, they have Hummers. Not very eco-friendly, Alpha Pack. Why is Deaton helping the Alphas again? To keep himself alive? They didn't even threaten him. I guess he was probably like, let's just bypass all that. No, but like he was protected by the Mountain Ash. That's the point of the Mountain Ash. He had to let their asses in like they're vampires. Oh, shit, you're right. Deucalion comes in and asks about Ennis's prognosis. Deaton says he'll make it until... Deucalion kills him. Bye, Ennis. 
I forgot about this part. The kill is kind of funny. Deaton's not that perturbed. He's like, I don't know this bitch. You just can't break Deaton, man. Nope. Solid. So true. You can't break that poker face. (laughs) But I wasted my time and he just exploded his head. Squish it like a grape. That's why I mentioned (laughs) it's going on in Deaton's head. Mm -hmm. Yeah. His inner monologue must be amazing. Oh, yeah. So in the script, it says whenever Deucalion enters, Ennis blinks, opening his eyes. He smiles weakly up at Deucalion as he recognizes him. Slowly, the blind alpha leans down and ever so gently kisses him on both cheeks. As Ennis' smile fades with dark realization, Deucalion does something far less gentle. Hand on the side of his head, Deucalion stabs a single claw into Ennis' temple. His body shudders violently, but only for a moment. With the last twitch, he relaxes and lies still. So he doesn't go full grape squish. I like this a lot better. The grape squish or this? <laughs> no, the, the way it's described in the script. I could see, like, I like, I like kind of like the formality of it or whatever. Like, I, I like that the kissing of both cheeks and all that, but I can kind of see. I mean, like, that's make... actually, the kissing of the cheeks is in the episode. What oh, we yeah. don't have, though, is the, um, and it's looking up at him, like, with like a weak smile that slowly kind of changes. Which oh, I think is interesting okay. and would have made the scene a lot more, I don't Sadder. know. Yeah, there yeah. would have been an, an element of tragedy. Whereas I do think, Calissa, to your point that the crumpling up his head like old homework <laughs> really just doesn't cause me to feel anything other than mild surprise, which I think was also what Deaton felt in that moment. <laughs> yeah, it it definitely loses some some punch just because he's he's unconscious you know it's like he's hanging on death he's hanging by a thread and he well he was basically dead so he killed him so he's probably in a better place now but it's like if you show that he's alive and lucid and all that mm-hmm. it, it does make it harder and or harder to see and all that and I, and especially I a moment that. of realization where he's yeah. like mm-hmm. happy to see him at first and then that happiness slowly fades yeah that just sounds really compelling to me yeah from outside the clinic, Cora asks how they know it isn't Derek inside. But then Kali screams in rage. Peter says, well, we know one thing that wasn't for Derek. I liked that line. Yeah, that was good. Maybe she was like, you were so hot, Derek. Such <laughs> a waste. <laughs> in the past, the fight at the mall continued. We don't usually see such a slow shift as we see on Scott in this scene. Yeah, it's very different. Yeah, and the Alpha Twins did a midair fisting. Yes, Yes, they did. Is that what the phrase Mile High Club refers to? Ha ha! The Alphas tried to force Derek to kill one of the others. Ooh, ooh, can I pick which one to kill? Can it be Scott? I'm sure it's shit not gonna kill Boyd, so... Uh, it would be really funny, though, if Derek just, like, pretended to faint. <laughs> yeah, just pull, like, a Kira Knightley in Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah. <laughs> I can't breathe! <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would have been great. But Kali was skeptical about Derek's potential since he was only an alpha to a couple of useless teenagers. Okay, mean word choice, but she has a point. She does. Luckily, Allison showed up with her bow and arrow. We then flash back to an earlier conversation between Allison and her father. Flashback within a flashback? Okay. I know, Teen Wolf really is outdoing itself here. <laughs> There's another thing that reading the episode, I actually caught more stuff than I did watching it. Like, this stuff is in the episode, but I just, for whatever reason, missed it. Allison's gaze falls on the map. Argent places an open book down, partially covering it. There's an oddly concerted effort to make it look like an absent-minded gesture, which we do have him covering it, but I don't feel like, you know, he goes out of his way to make it look like any more casual. Oh, what did I do there? Yeah. Right. Yeah. I I didn't get the, the nuance of the moment. Is he trying to figure out where the alpha pack is? Do you 
Do you guys remember? Or is he figuring out, like, I can't remember what he's doing with the map. I don't, I don't remember either. Yeah, honestly, I don't remember. In the scene, Chris tried to convince Allison to stay out of the situation with the alphas. Allison thought it sounded like just saving his own ass. Stay out of it, Nick Lachey. Should, should you explain that for Wolfies? I'm going to say it was something from like One Tree Hill, but I never even watched that show. Not enough trees. No, I need more than just One Tree. I know it almost sounds like it sounds like a colloquialism that means like a town that's like so tiny it's not even worth mentioning you know oh yes yeah, it, it almost sounds like that place that that place is a one tree hill yeah that's what it sounds like to me <laughs> we don't have one horse towns here we have one tree hills here <laughs> exactly exactly yeah so apparently Nick Lachey was on one tree hill playing himself Oh, oh my god okay sure and there's like a whole thing where i think he overhears like something like someone else talking about their relationship drama and he like tries to weigh in and they're like just stay out of it nick lachey <laughs> nice i like that a lot yeah it was very popular on the soup when joe Bacale was hosting oh yes god that was a long time ago you can find the clip easily but yeah. all right so i say it all the time to people and no one ever understands it <laughs> can confirm yes but now we know now you know yep back in the fight allison's arrows allow some of the wolves time to escape so Cor didn't see it happen that's why she didn't come back until later she was helping boyd get away during this you can see them in the background oh yeah so she might have not known about it until later and peter okay. you know felt like he was too good to go so Right, of course. I don't know, maybe Styles texted him about it later on the bus. <laughs> you can only imagine, like, maybe that was the thing, because, like, I find, like, really hard to believe that Styles wouldn't be like, so logically, that means if Ennis is still alive, there's a good chance Derek's still alive. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like weird there's never a conversation about that. So I just imagine maybe he texts Peter being like, hey, maybe you should go check to see if Derek is still alive. Yeah, so he's, like, on the bus with Scott, and he's like, so Scott everyone got out right like Derek and Scott's like I don't know he fell and then I was just so sleepy and so, <laughs> and so Styles reluctantly gets out his phone and texts Peter and is like I need you to go look for your for your nephew please oh. this is very prominent but for whatever reason I didn't catch it it says as they clash with brutal force for the briefest second Scott's eyes glow red the eyes of an alpha Allison blinks shocked by the surge of color above Deucalion turns his head as if sensing it breath taken away by the, the significant moment which in the episode we don't have Deucalion turning his head but we do have Scott's eyes glowing red him like shaking it off and Allison noticing yeah but I in the audience did not notice I guess like you know it's it's very fast. Like it's it's yeah. a very quick moment. I kind of feel like with you saying that now, they maybe should have lingered just a little yeah. bit longer on it. I think maybe the whole thing is like because there's so many alphas involved in the fight, there's so many like red eyes, you don't really be like, oh wait, that one shouldn't have the red eyes. Right. That's that a good that's a good point. I didn't think about that. It's a sea of red eyes. Yeah. In the script, Scott actually calls out Derek's name when Derek falls which we don't have in the episode. Does he also say, I'll come back for you? (laughs) (laughs) Because he doesn't, is the joke. (laughs) (laughs) Is that the joke, Will? In case you didn't get it. (laughs) Uh, I'm so stupid. In the present, the gang discusses their situation on the bus. Coach is so bad at being a chaperone, guardian, whatever. There's extra children now. Not only was there concern that he was going to leave behind children, now he's gained some. 
He is hilariously bad at this. Some ancient cultures used sacrifices before a battle, Lydia explains. With that in mind, Lydia postulates that there could be a battle coming between the Alpha Pack and Duroc. Uh, There's actually an extra line here. Style says, so Alpha Werewolf seeks to Dark Druid, but in the script he adds, what nightmare parallel dimension did we get sucked into? And I really love that. I like that too. The darkest timeline. The darkest timeline. Yes. Allison tells Scott that if Derek is really dead, it's not his fault. Wait, there's a possibility that he's not really dead? Because to be clear, we just left his body there. Yeah, it's weird because Derek and Ennis had the same fall. And they're both alphas. Also right. Scott looks so cute in the scene though. Yeah. Adorbs. <laughs> totally makes up for it. At the clinic, Deaton and Morel discuss the alpha pack. Did anyone look at the body and the fact that there were claw marks in his face that hadn't been there previously? Yeah, and the whole, his head being kind of caved in now thing. There's internal bleeding that led to, you know, his face imploding. <laughs> Deaton suggests that Morel might be in over her head. Morel says it's a little late to be playing Big Brother. At the high school, a very bloody Derek stumbles over to Jennifer's car and collapses. He was looking for the Jeep. Aww. Yeah, he was. The script ends with, it says, he collapses to the ground in front of her, bleeding, pale and barely breathing, severely wounded, but not dead. Not yet. Dot, dot, dot. Oh, I feel like that description of Derek is just his description in life. Yeah. Pale, bleeding, not yet dead. Not yet. Yeah, I feel like on the very, very rare occasion that someone asks Derek how he's doing, he's like, not dead yet. It's sad. (laughs) But also life. Mm-hmm. You know what else is also life? The alpha section. All right, Wolfies, that wraps up the beta section for Frayed. And now we're about to dive into spoilers, not just for this episode, but for the whole Teen Wolf series. If you want to stay spoiler-free for all the excellent stories to come, jump out now and we'll catch you next week. But if this isn't your first time in Beacon Hills and you want to hear more, don't move a muscle. Here comes the alpha. Your heart beats steady. You might be afraid of me, but you're controlling it. Maybe you'd actually rise to the occasion become an alpha by killing one. I'm not like you. I don't have to kill people. Not yet. But situations come about, situations where you realize the only way to protect one person is to kill another. All right, Wolfies, now we're gonna jump over to our interview with Gabriel Fleming, editor for Teen Wolf. Let's have a listen. What originally drew you to editing? I I was one of those kids that was making videos with my friend when I was nine years old with his dad's video camera. And kind of editing became one of the, the, the primary modes of my uh, understanding and working with, with film in general. And as, as I got into school, it was like editing was the piece that I was always attracted to. And also the way I always visualize just cinema. I don't, I'm not as much into story and character as I am into juxtaposition of images and music and how things go together. So that was, it was a natural progression for me. You know, I've directed a few things, but I'm always thinking about the editing. I like, I direct in order to pre-edit essentially. <laughs> nice, nice. It definitely makes the job easier if you're shooting for the edit and, oh, and all that, yeah. As a director, it, it's it's a little bit of a, um, Achilles heel though because you get such a you can be a perfectionist about how things might move to the next one that you it's hard you, you, it's hard to let things go which is something as a director I had to start being like okay now abandon my edit 
<laughs> just let it be what it's going to be from the material right here by from the nice. actors you know well it's definitely something we've talked about in the past before and i know i i definitely remember talking about it with ed where it's like you know there's the script there's the footage and there's the editing and each one is its own thing you know and and it's so interesting being able to just get a mountain of footage and be like well it's yeah. I don't know. The script says it goes this way, but can we do it this way and, and see which is which is better? You know. So. Well, Teen Wolf, I think, out of everything I've worked on, has been the closest to the script between the beginning and the final form. Um, you know, I've, on other things that I've worked on, uh, like Peter Berg films, like we would, me and, and Colby Parker, the other editor, would would throw so much dialogue out that was in the script before mm-hmm. Pete even saw it. Wow, that's interesting. There's too much here. There's a lot of great improvisation that's working instead. Let's use that instead. If you remember something, we'll bring it back. But so going, you know, I did a little bit of of that before going to work on Teen Wolf. So going to Teen Wolf, I was like, so when there's lines, I can we just, can I just cut lines? And it was like, no, 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 no. (laughs) Jeff has really worked hard on all of these dialogue. We're going to keep everything. And then you put it together and they wouldn't end up, the episodes weren't end up too long. So you go, okay, this is, yeah, it's, it's pretty close to the script. That's so interesting to hear that for like, say a Peter Berg project that your assembly cut is not like just everything where you're like, it's the assembly cut, but it's what I believe should be the assembly cut. Not just, well, here's literally everything we shot in the correct order and then see what happens. So, wow. Cause I'm sure you get like a three hour, four hour, cut of something so yeah Yeah, different editors are different and i think as i you know i'm kind of like a younger editor although i'm not as young as i used to be but uh that you're as as the editorial has gone on we're expected to deliver something really good and polished Mm -hmm. first pass and usually that involves cutting things down and whittling it and not making it just everything. You don't just throw everything. Some editors do, you know, working with uh, Rick Roman Wall, though, he, his scripts are pretty efficient too. So I would cut out every once in a while a little thing before he saw it. But most of the time I would say, hey, I think this should go. Hey, I think this should go. And he'd be like, yeah, let's, let's cut that out. Yeah, the amount of polish that's, that's required these days is, is incredible <laughs> from the past. Well, there you go. It's all about time, I guess, time and money. So we got to get it as close to the final product right at the beginning as, yeah. as possible. So, yeah. awesome. Well, that's really cool. So how did Teen Wolf come into your life? So I worked on the pilot, not as an editor, but as a music editor. So uh, I, on the pilot, Colby Parker Jr. was the one who cut the pilot. And he usually for pilots at television shows, they'll bring on kind of like a big fancy director and a big fancy editor, and then they don't ever work on the show again. Uh, not the case here with Teen Wolf, although Russell was a big fancy director to start out with. So yes, but uh, so they brought in Colby, and he asked for a music editor, and this was because it was one of MTV's first scripted shows. It was this moving between unscripted to scripted, and um, Blaine Williams, who is the post production supervisor, I think it was the first scripted show he ever did. So when Colby asked for a music editor, Blaine said, what's a music editor? <laughs> <laughs> and I had been editing a bunch of um, reality television with Blaine and we all cut our own music. That was part of the job of a reality editor. So Blaine said, well, I know Gabe can cut music. Maybe he can come in. So I came in to be a music editor and then worked on 
on the first for just for a week on the pilot and i just used batman thing <laughs> 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 with batman for a temp score right because first there's a temp score before there's any score and uh then that was the beginning of cold colby and i's partnership so that's how i met colby and then went on to work on peter berg's films that's awesome yeah that's... and then i came back in season two of teen wolf to edit properly you edited frayed Yep. which is the most flashback heavy episode of the show. Yeah. And uh, just wondering, is there anything different about editing episodes with a lot of flashbacks or with a fractured timeline? Well, you have to be careful that it's clear what timeline you're in, if, if that's what you want, because that's not always what you want. But yeah, so I mean, that can be something that you do have to do with editing that's not just naturally in the script like where are we because you're reading a script you can obviously see oh new thing flashback but in the directing and the editing you have to be able to tell that in some way i watched back fray and afraid and uh yeah we were doing a lot of uh i was doing a lot of like of a subtle glow to kind of show that there was a flashback and i think that was it <laughs> you know i was kind of i was looking at some other episodes that i'd done and there was a lot of flashbacks because I did um, Lunar Ellipse, which has a big flashback in the beginning, and and um, there was no glow for that one. But I think it was, I yeah, I, that, the glow, and then there's just little like tells, and I can't tell you what any of those are, but they're all specific. Nice. Um, lunar Ellipse, and then I also did the one with um, the flashback to Derek's childhood. Visionary. Visionary, yeah. yeah. So that one was another, yeah, I have a lot of like messing around with, moving in time maybe you'll work with christopher nolan one day i hear he likes <laughs> that kind of stuff that so. would that actually that's the like the most challenging version of that right is you have to tell how each thing is changing it usually has to do with something being extremely slow motion yes well there you go <laughs> how did teen wolf compare to working on other shows like making the band and america's next top model well that's scripted versus unscripted which is an entirely different beast i kind of didn't go back to unscripted after Teen Wolf just because it's so difficult. Like it is, you are the director as the editor of an unscripted show is the equivalent of a director of a, a scripted show. So it's your responsibility that the show be good. And so much time was spent just in the editing bay, trying to put together something and make it something that millions of people wanted to watch. And it was fully your responsibility to do. And there was like, <laughs> like a few people around to help, but it was a lot of pressure. And um, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I always say for, for editors that if you've got some reality on your, your resume, that's a, that is a good thing because it is editing bootcamp, it's storytelling bootcamp. Uh, and I, I credit that experience with a lot of my ability to, to tell stories in, in, um, in feature form. I remember I worked in in reality very briefly and I was talking to someone who was an editor primarily in reality TV and he yeah. had most recently been working on one of those like ghost hunting shows <laughs> and he was like yeah I don't know if you know this about these ghost ghost hunting shows but nothing ever happens and so it's entirely the editor's responsibility to cut things together in a way that suggests that something could have happened yeah. because that's the entirety of the story. And I was like, 
oh man, I never really thought about that. And he was like, yeah, you know, there's no, there's no writer to make sure that there's tension. There's no director to make sure there's, well, I mean, there is in like a, a functional sense, yeah. but in, not in a storytelling sense, right? To make sure that there's visual tension and yeah. you don't have actors to make sure that there's like compelling character work going on. So the entirety of the storytelling experience is crafted by the editor. And I was like, oh yeah, that does sound incredibly hard. Yes, it's, it's really challenging. And I, and I um I commend everyone who does it. And, uh, you know, <laughs> reality editors are paid a little bit more than scripted editors generally. Um, and there's good reason for it because it's a whole extra skill set you need to have. Yeah. It sounds daunting. I, yeah. I, I feel yes. like just, just taking all that and being like, yeah, you know, like here's like three hours of footage. Like, can you give me like four minutes? Like, give me a scene. Out of all that, and just the weight of responsibility is is can be overwhelming, and also just I also think that something that I got from editing reality television was this feeling of the buck stops with me. I have to make it work. If they there's no one else, and bringing that I think to to scripted I think brings a little bit of an extra layer of okay, what solutions can I provide here, rather than well the director didn't shoot right. I, I remember Andrew Parkhurst, who worked on Teen Wolf, um, uh, in, in, as uh, assistant editor, and I believe later editor. Uh, I think yeah. um, uh, worked on reality, and he worked on like one of those swamp monster shows. And and we were um, we were roommates for a long time. I remember one day he came out to, came home and told me like he spent an entire day taking footage of two guys in a boat and making it look like there might have been a monster in the water. And there was no monster in the water. All there was was like a fishing lure going up and down and then a couple of people looking around. And he had to turn that into like something scary. He'd be like, oh my God, is there a monster there? Yeah. And, and he said he was like, it was insane. And it like almost drove him crazy. <laughs> Did you ever visit the Teen Wolf set when you were working on Teen Wolf? Yeah, we were starting on season three. We were, editorial was in the same sound stages in Northridge as uh, the set, as the primary set. So it was literally a door away, which was really fun to be able to uh, just, if you want a little downtime, you need a little break, just pop over a set and watch them shooting. Usually wasn't your episode, you know, when it was, you, you usually were so busy <laughs> cutting your own episode at that time that they happen to be shooting the next one that you couldn't really pop over that much. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I got to know, you know, some of the cast and, and um, it was, it was a, it was a really fun experience and something that I miss because editorial is usually separated from production, which is good as an editor. It's good to be kind of cloistered from what's happening on set. Um, so you, you know, for the job, it's better to have a, a pure view of what, uh, what the footage is rather than what went behind making the footage. But, it, you know, you kind of don't have this sense of family. And it's the same thing as, as, um, as what's happening now is editing is, after COVID is becoming more remote. So we're all just staying in our houses and doing stuff. And I just think back to the, the Team Wolf days of, of um, you know, just popping over and seeing everybody and talking to the producers and, you know, seeing like, what are you, what, what are you shooting? <laughs> what <are> you <laughs> oh, that's cool. <laughs> you know? Hi Tyler. You know, it, it was a good, it was a good time. 
It was a singular experience. Yeah. What was your favorite episode of the show to edit? So I kind of went through, I was like, all right, what's, what's my favorite episode? And I was going through Hulu and looking at stuff. And um, there's a bunch, I think, I, but one I wasn't expecting, I was expecting to say Visionary because that one was, it was almost a little bit of a, which was the episode of, of um, Derek's you know, childhood. It was this little outside of the show kind of capsule. And it was fun to make that feel a little different than the rest of the show. But I think it was Illuminated which I just kind of went back to that today and uh, looked at that's the, which is the one where they're all, everybody's in body paints and a black light party. And yeah. Yeah. There's a, great where I think where we get introduced to the, the Oni, the Oni, they show up. Yeah. And that was, it's a whole episode that takes place in this party, which was really fun to be able to just do kind of music back to back and, and, and have fun dance music to, to cut to and then the visuals were really uh, fun to work with. And then otherwise was just like, there were some really good horror moments in there. And I just saw the moment where, God, I don't remember the character's names. I think it was Max um, was in the closet with where he's trying to do the light bulb and then right. only around him. And that was a really well-directed um, little horror scene. There was a lot of moments of that. And it was before, it was early on with the only two where they were more in darkness. Yeah. It yeah. Kind of felt a little bit, the more you got to see them, the less scary they were. But in the very beginning, when they were really in darkness and they were flitting in and out, that was when it was, they were still scary. And it was like, okay, this, <laughs> that, yeah. that was a fun episode to edit. And I also, I was just looking at it today and I was like, okay, I like that cut. I like that cut. I like that cut. I went back and looked at Freight and I was like, no, no, why did I do that? Oh God, don't do that. Why did I do that? No. <laughs> illuminate i was like oh good good illuminate's a really good episode yeah it's yeah great. it's fantastic in a fantastic season so uh it's yes really so good. good yeah we do monthly watch parties with our patrons and one of the movies we watched was Deepwater horizon do you have any memories from working on that project or a scene that you're particularly proud of first i have to say i'm surprised that you did a watch party of Deepwater horizon what inspired you to do when was this oh this is a couple months back yeah, yeah. Months ago. yeah. Why did you choose Deepwater Horizon? Uh, we choose shows or movies that Teen Wolf people have worked on. So, oh, like, okay. we try to we try to do that, and right, right, right. Uh, yeah, not not all of them for the watch. Parties. Not all like, of we them. We took we took uh, we took suggestions, and that was that okay. was one of the ones that our patrons wanted to watch. Yeah, yeah, that was great. Um, having the that Dylan be there was was fantastic because that was my third film with Peter Berg and um, my first as a fully credited editor but um, yeah and then it was like having Dylan come in was like this little uh, crossover but uh, that movie was crazy and I just tell you that was we were shot in New Orleans um, and they built a nearly full scale uh, scale oil rig in a parking lot wow and an incredible amount of fire and fire is difficult to shoot it was it was interesting thing happened with that movie because it was Peter Berg inherited it from another director uh, who had done a lot of the the pre-planning so it was scheduled in in a way that Pete shoots really fast like he does a lot of improvisation he he has just three cameras going all the time 
and just is constantly interacting with the actors and kind of rewriting the scene as they're shot. And it's all about intensity and, and, and getting um, as much as he can from the actors. And, and he doesn't shoot for hours and hours and hours. You know, he'll, he'll get everything. When he gets it, he's like, okay, we're done. And they had scheduled this movie for this other director, essentially, not knowing how fast he'd shoots. So they, they just wrapped early, very, very often. And it was a very expensive movie and there's this big crew. The producers were freaked out that like, well, what can we do with this time? So editors are often um, you know, used to direct, to help direct uh, Second Union and that kind of stuff. And, and so Colby and I ended up being called to set to kind of like see what we could shoot. And it ended up, I had more directing experience than Colby. So it ended up being me just constantly going to set and keeping the crew <laughs> The crew hated me <laughs> because I'd come and they'd be like, oh, okay, we're wrapped. And the director left. All right. Who's, oh, oh, here comes Gabe. Hey guys. Oh, we got, right, let's see what's this. You know what? Let's get some shots of these buttons. Shots <laughs> of these buttons being pushed. And they were just like, ah. Oh. One of the camera operators was French and I was telling him how to shoot like this one little button and, and he was like, Gabriel, I will, I will put every ounce of my creative soul, every moment into all of my cinematic life into this shot of this button. Just tell me what you want to do. <laughs> Fantastic. <That's> amazing. <laughs> Very strange. And then just there was, there was this one moment where, where it was in the middle, it was like 4 a.m. and it was a second unit thing. The editors will often join second unit. Second unit is is when it's you know not the primary unit. There's a different director. They're getting like extra shots, usually stunts and that kind of stuff. And it was just on the top of the rig in the middle of the night, and everything is on fire. And like somehow I was given the reins to this shoot. <laughs> what am I doing here? How did I get here from like you know directing these tiny little things to like saying okay. Turn on the fire. <laughs> wow. Roll sound, roll camera, go fire, and like, oh, you know, action. <laughs> it was a, it was a very strange experience. And, well, that's interesting. It, it sounds like, it sounds like that experience was kind of mimicking uh, Peter Berg's experience because he started small too. Yeah. And then now he's just doing all these two hundred million dollar yeah. movies yeah. where you have he's to turn on the fire. Turn on the fire. <laughs> yeah, turn on the fire. Right, he was an actor first, he was and an actor. Just... he was on set and experiencing all of that. I I spent very little time on set before that. You know, it was kind of like Teen Wolf, and which is a much smaller set, and then going to that and be like, what is going on? <laughs> <laughs> what has happened with my life? And the, yeah, nothing like that has repeated since then. But definitely seems like a crazy transition there. Yeah, <laughs> it was. It was intense, and I'm kind of impressed that I didn't have some breakdown. <laughs> <laughs> Who was your favorite Teen Wolf character? Was there one uh, character or pairing that you particularly enjoyed editing their scenes? Character-wise, I think it was Gerard Argent. Huh. You know, he was, I was a big um, Battlestar Galactica fan, so it was just a pleasure to kind of see oh, yeah. another role. And then um, he's so just like, choose the scenery in such a wonderful <laughs> way. There's just so much growling. Um, <laughs> so much fun to edit just like because you could just use that oh <laughs> down there to get that <laughs> <laughs> he 
he was so great. You know, he was he he really laid it on thick compared to Battlestar Galactica too, which was I think well, it must have been a lot of fun for him. Yeah. yeah. But I was uh, looking back. I think um, just like pairing, I think Scott and Allison. Um, you know, I was just I was looking watching Frayed that there's two scenes in there where I was like, this is a good scene, and it's the the one with Scott and Allison kind of play fighting in the beginning. Um, and then the one where Allison's kind of trying to thread the needle towards mm-hmm. the end. Um, and they they were they had a real chemistry to them that was that was pleasurable to watch and pleasurable to, to work with. She was quite good. Like I just looking back at, at her performances in there, Crystal was 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 really quite a talented uh, actor. Yeah, absolutely. Oh yeah, she was amazing on the show. Yeah. yeah. Do you prefer working on big movies like Deepwater Horizon and Greenland or smaller stories like Teen Wolf? I think, I mean, there's two questions there. One is a little bit more like smaller drama genre versus big action movies with lots of explosions and special effects, um, visual effects, I should say. Uh, I I always get those mixed up. Special effects is practical on set, on camera, visual effects is, is post. I think television, Features in television are so different because television is so much about the writing that as an editor, there's not, kind of not as much authorship that you get to impart on it. It's it's rare. Like every episode, there will be two or three scenes where you're like, okay, I'm really going to work on the scene. Um, whereas in features, you're developing a whole language every time. So there's every scene involves something, some issue that you have to work out, some kind of spark that you um, can find. And so... It's, it can be more engaging in that way, but then scripted is great because you're getting through stuff faster and you're, you're kind of like being able to be an artist more quickly instead of spending time in perfectionism, which is where, where feature films go. But, uh, but then there's, then when you talk about action films, those can be really fun because working with visual effects and working with all the details of stunts and, and all of that can be really fun. You know, I think action films, I think are the, the purest form of cinema in a way, because they're, they're not about acting and they're not about, uh, the drama is in, is in the editing very much. Something like Deepwater Horizon compared to Teen Wolf, right? Teen Wolf is a much smaller show and smaller budget than Deepwater Horizon, which was this huge project, but then Teen Wolf, was probably seen by fewer people than Deepwater Horizon, but but loved by so many more. And it's that I think is what's important, what's satisfying as an artist is is to have a high level of 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 engagement and impact on a small number of people. Teen Wolf is not a small number of people by any means. But <laughs> then that that continues down into like if you're you know my film The Lost Coast is wouldn't be called financially successful at all. It costs like $50,000 and, and I never made that back. Um, but there's, you know, a lot of people who really loved it. And I think that was, was one of the more satisfying things that I've done. It's a lot of work, didn't make me any money. It cost me a lot of money, but I think that's worth it, I think. <laughs> definitely, definitely. It's your passion. Yeah. Looking back, is there a particular scene that you recall being hard to edit or more challenging than others when it came to, came to Teen Wolf? I, I think the, I was thinking of a couple scenes. Um, 
in one I don't remember what episode it was in, but it's with Lydia and there's faces in the wall. I didn't get to watch it right before. It's been a while. I don't remember all the details. <laughs> that one I remember being challenging in that I so wanted to get it right and that it was so well uh, shot and so well directed. And it was, it had a, you know, a Kubrick quality to it that demanded time, demanded just holding on things and letting the, the horror and the creepiness play out with a pace that allowed it to settle into you. And that is something that is really hard to do in television mm -hmm. is to let something hold because when you're, um, when you're restricted to 42 minutes and you've got to get all this script in, just holding on a shot for five seconds more than it needs to be on to tell the story is a big sacrifice for something else. So that one I would just really remember like, okay, I can cut this normal pace or I can cut this to be how it should be, how it should be like this Kubrickian feel. And um, I wish I had kind of done that for more other scenes, particularly watching Frey. There was a few of them where I was like, God, this is so fast. I know why it's fast because it's, it's television we had to hit at the time. Um, but wow, this would have been more powerful if we slowed down. But that scene, I think I, I think I held to that. I should watch it again and see if I still agree with that. But. As an editor, when you're reading a script, looking for your next project, what are you looking for in a script? I think that's something that it, the ability to read a script is something that not a lot of people are good at. It's, but it's, I think it's pretty simple. It's like if you're reading it and you were enjoying it and don't want to put it down, good. You know, I think that's pretty much what I look for. I look for myself being engaged while I'm reading it. You know, there can be a few uh, issues, but for the most part, if I don't want to put it down or I'm having an emotional reaction and I need a break, because sometimes you can't just sit and watch and read, you know, for two hours. Um, yeah. That's pretty much it. And I look for, uh, as with anything, I just look for humanity. I look for little moments of um, unexpected details that you wouldn't see in another film or that feel real. I'm always looking for, you know, I, I have, I, I do a lot of documentary style work and I'm always looking for moments that are unexpected and natural. And, you know, like there's a little moment in, in Freight actually where I was just watching where um, Christine Wolf wasn't, wasn't a show team that in television really isn't a place where you, there's a lot of opportunity for improvisation and mm -hmm. There's a moment in that scene with Allison and Scott where they're doing the play fighting, where she kind of goes like, like does a little like fake out to him. And that was just in one take. It was just Crystal adding a little nuance to it. And that I was just watching back that scene and I'm just watching it. I'm like, oh, that to me makes the scene because it feels real in that little moment. Uh, it doesn't feel, you know, acted or scripted. And I looked for I look for that in scripts. There's little mm. flares of just a little like, oh, I'm gonna write this fun thing, you know. It could be stupid, <laughs> but as long as it's interesting, you know. Right. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, totally. Can you talk us through uh, the typical editing process for an episode of Teen Wolf? Yeah. So they what was the shooting schedule was usually like ten days, I think. Is that right? Eight, seven, seven. seven. And so while they were shooting it, we would usually be editing something else, but we would kind of pop in on set every once in a while if we needed to. 
Um, and then we would, as soon as they finished shooting, wait. All right, let me back up. That's not true. As they were shooting, the dailies would come in and then we would start editing the dailies as they were going. Our editing schedule for Team Wolf was 20 days for the editor's cut, which is a little longer than a lot of scripted television, uh, but we needed it because every episode was so different and genre television is, is uh, it's not so straightforward. And so we would, while they were shooting, we'd be cutting and then we would have a few days, you know, five days or so, or 10 days after to finish our editor's cut. Then we would show it to the director and the director would give their notes and come in sometimes, although they didn't really happen all that much because they were usually so busy with their next episode that I remember Russell and Tim coming in for like, you know, an hour and working on um, just be like, oh, this shot, I wanted this shot to go to the shot and I shot this for this and you go, oh, okay, and put it together. Um, and then you do the notes with the writers and with Jeff. And that was the more intensive part. That would usually be a few days. And then after that, it was turning over to sound and visual effects and going through the mix process. And all of that took a while too. And I, I can't tell you what happens during that period, but somehow from the first day that you're editing something to the day you're like in mix and deliver it was shortest eight weeks, I think. Oh wait. No, shortest five weeks, usually eight weeks. And those four weeks between the editor's cut delivery and being locked, I don't know what happens during that period. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, like everything else, basically. We were we were intense because a lot of that is like, uh, I was talking to someone, it was my dad, and he was asking me like, well, what was a day like? And I was like, uh, I don't know. I know like the beginning of the process is the blue sky and we're all talking and it's all sunshine and roses. I remember the end when we're all upset and crying and, uh, you know, trying to write scenes that shoot the next day and, and all that. So it's like, yeah, but the middle part, I, I don't, I don't remember that. Yeah, so exactly. I have no idea. Yeah. Total blank. <laughs> you edited Teen Wolf episodes directed by four different directors, although the majority were directed by Russell Mulcahy. You touched on this a little bit, but what would collaboration look like with the director when you were editing an episode? And did their directorial style affect your approach to the episode? We developed a, a little bit of a sense of trust. Once, once you've worked with the director for a little bit and once the editor's been on the show that they kind of get to know you, I think Russell and Tim were just like, okay, it, yeah, that's good. <laughs> They'd come in, it really was just, they would come in and they would say, oh, I was hoping to do this with this. If, if I had put something together in a way that they hadn't envisioned, then they would say, I was hoping to do this. And then we would do that version. And I don't think that they were, you know, I don't, I don't know how many episodes I did with Tim. It was weirdly with Russell all the time. And we had a nice um, relationship where I'd go out to set every once in a while and, and um, hang out with him and, and also very irritatingly be there for, for uh, pickups, which is when after an episode is shot, you, you know, the editor will ask for a certain number of shots to be shot to, to, uh, that are needed to tell the story in some way. You know, I'd be there for those and drive him crazy saying like, no, we need another one. It didn't quite do it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, more buttons <laughs> yeah. but then this was Fraid was directed by um, Rob um, who sadly uh, passed away recently 
and that this was his first episode, I believe. So I think that's right. Yeah, I think it was his first because he was, you know, any anybody doing a first television episode is just nervous as hell. So uh, this was a, a fun to work with him because a lot of I feel like what a lot of what I was doing was just being like, no, it's good. This is working really. Well. <laughs> worked you know it worked really well he did a great job but he was naturally very anxious about it and uh really involved in the edit too like i do remember him spending a lot of time with me and uh of course so that that was i think fun just to to have that difference and and try and execute his vision as he wanted it uh as closely as possible for his first episode What's it like piecing together scenes for VFX-driven projects when so many of the shots are being worked on right up to the last minute? VFX movies, VFX-heavy movies, and I've, I've done a bunch of them at this point, are really fun, I think, uh, to, because a lot of it you get to come up with the shots yourself as an editor. You know, in Deepwater Horizon, we had a, a you know, we went and raided the model shop where they had the, the scale model of the, the rig and we brought it down to editorial and we just had it in editorial and got a you know a little video camera and we would just okay we need a shot that does this and we get the video camera and we go you know do a little thing <laughs> around the rig and then you cut that in um and then give it to ilm you know and say like do that <laughs> um so that's that was awesome really fun. yeah battleship yeah. was really fun that way too because we just had all of these little koi ships on the carpet and we would just <laughs> go you know get the camera and, and fly around with our camera and then cut it together and then give it to um previs which is uh pre-visualization so there's a team that does kind of like really um low quality 3d effects um of shots that serve as an editing model that you use those and then revise them and then once you get a good one then that gets sent to the uh the visual effects vendor. And uh, that process is is really fun to be able to kind of have a blank slate like that and just be working with what's going to be these <laughs> huge, huge effects. That was another thing, an experience going from, because I went from Battleship to Team Wolf. And Battleship was, you know, like an over $200 million film. And there was an incredible number of visual effects. In, and uh, there was this scene that I had cut and they said, hey, this scene is like a million dollars over budget. Uh, do you think you can bring it down? And you know, they said this to Colby and Colby said, Gabe, can you, can you cut a million dollars out of the scene? And I said, just give me an itemized list of the shots. <laughs> I went through and I kind of came back and, and showed it to Colby. I think it took me like a half hour. I came back, showed it to Colby. He was like, what did you cut? I don't notice the difference. I was like, okay. Wow. Well, that was the million dollars of shots that just came out. Whereas on Teen Wolf, you know, we had a very small visual effects budget of, I can't remember what it was, it was something like 30,000 an episode or something or less. And every visual effects shot on that show was a battle to keep it. And we're talking about shots that were like $500. And I'm like, hey, we've got this like blood like flying out. We This would be really great to get. I'd be like, we just can't. <laughs> shot I said, it's six hundred dollars no it's just not in the budget <laughs> the scale was so different it was uh, it was very odd to 
jump between the two. That's insane. I'm sad you didn't get to do anything like that with Teen Wolf because as you were describing the the oil rig shots, I was picturing you guys with little Teen Wolf figurines being like, <laughs> and then we zoom in on the Teen Wolf. <laughs> yeah. Give me that. That would have been great. Yeah. <laughs> it's shocking how much they were able to do visual effects wise with with the limited resources they they had. Um, uh, John, if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah, John Gross. Yeah, just did such an incredible job with with on such a tight schedule and with so little so little money you know like most visual effects have so many scores of people working on a single shot and that wasn't the case with the show but you would never know it watching it it so exactly. we have there are some shots uh, from teen wolf that i'm like if you just showed this to someone out of yeah. context and be like how much do you think this movie cost yeah and they would be like i don't know a hundred million dollars and be like that shot cost $45 and it was the hardest $45 we ever spent on Teen Wolf. And, yeah. you know, because I mean, pulling teeth to get those. It, it was, you know, so. Yeah. The snake shot, that was a pretty legendary one. Yeah. Just yeah. fantastic. We talked yeah. to Russell about that and, oh man. You're using so $45 as a, as like a, an exaggeration, but really, no, it would, you'd be talking about like that snake shot. I don't know how much it was, but it's probably like $2,500, you know, it was like the cheapest thing in the world. Well. <laughs> the Defined Move is one of my absolute favorite episodes of the show. Uh, do you have any memories from editing that episode in particular? I um, think that, uh, yeah, there's, I mean, just the set, the snowy set uh, was, so annoying because of uh, snow stuff that they were using was this starch like potato based fake snow and it got on your shoes and then you tracked it around places and it was impossible to get out i had it in my car um in the kind of like the carpet of my car never got it out ever tried so hard to get that stuff out because i didn't i've been on this stuff before i didn't know you had to really be careful not tracking at places. I thought it was like snow. I think what, what I mean, that, should, that was episode is so pleasurable. Any of the, um, was it Void Styles, right? Um, yeah. Any of that was so pleasurable to cut just because uh, Dylan was so great at, at playing that character. And yeah, the beginning, I think the, is it the beginning of that episode where it has the flashback to the, um, the tree stump and the flashback to the pilot? Is it the divine move? No, that's oh, that's lunar ellipse. That oh. yeah, that's in three A. That's the end of three right. A when they all go into yeah, that's the lunar ellipse. Right, right, right. Oh, okay. No, yeah. So no divine move. I'm, I'm there was um there was a couple other things. I think that just an editing thing that was fun was the um what's the creature in the end? What was what was he called? The bandage. The Nagitsune or the bandage man of the Nagitsune? Nagitsune, right. He his movement was a fun kind of editing challenge to get him to have like this creepy movement without making it feel too obviously edited, but just doing little tiny speed ups and like little speed ramps and like different movements that he had to kind of accentuate what um, the actor was doing. That one was a fun editing thing. And then then just yeah, looking back at it was the the bad moon rising when Styles, Boyd Styles arrives at the hospital. So good. That was, <sighs> Yeah, that was, as I remember, that was a fun editing thing just because it was a lot of material was shot in slow motion, but not necessarily intended to be slow motion. Um, you know, you just shoot, shoot something slow motion um, by default. And 
I, I'm not sure if this is true. <laughs> I think it was Russell did this episode. We'd have to confirm if he thought of it that way or not, or if it was something that came about with this song being brought up and then like, oh, let's try this whole thing in slow motion and make it a musical moment rather than a action scene where they're going down the halls and there's chaos. Right. I remember it in the way that makes me look better, which was that it was something that I completely invented with Laura Webb and coming up and putting that song there and making it slow motion. But that not, might not be true. So <laughs> memory is famously bad and, and, uh, and good for me. So <laughs> if you could be any supernatural creature from Teen Wolf, what would you be? Well, this is a tough one. So I, I would not want to be any supernatural creature that's involved in fighting. <laughs> the amount of trauma that these kids have gone through on this show, like they, the, just the PTSD that they must have, because what was it, like how many, how much time had passed between the first episode of season one and like the end of season four? Didn't we at some point figure out that it was like... It's like 40 days or something like yeah, that. It was, <laughs> no, it, it's longer than that. But it is, it's yeah. practically real time. It's yeah. almost, it's, yeah. It, it's not like very short years. It was, they went through a lot of stuff in a couple months, in like a few months. Mm -hmm. And I would not want to be any of them that's involved in fighting. I think, I don't know if a druid counts as supernatural, but uh, I think that would be probably yeah. number one. You know, just like get to do magic and kind of stay in the background. Yeah. I think that's a great pick. Yeah, that's yeah. a good pick. I like that hands one off, hands off, supernatural. Exactly. <laughs> Either that or Banshee. You know, Banshee, I think, would be number two. Nice. Oh, and like not as. But if I were to be a, pick a character in the show, I think I think I would want to be Danny. <laughs> yeah. He's the most popular person in all He's of well the hills. That's a well that's loved. a well reasoned answer because yeah. Danny is pretty much king of Beacon Hills. Yeah. yeah. He's beloved by all. And he doesn't, like, he's not involved in the drama of the trauma <laughs> much, right? Like, I'm yeah. trying to think when he, what happened to his character and when he, uh, what what trauma he went through, a few things, but not as, not nearly. Yeah, not he's nearly. Like, he's, like, poisoned in 3A, and he's attacked by the... Anima. Uh, the Canima. By the Canima in two. But they're like not, they're not comparatively, they're not that severe of situation. Like he's in the hospital for like a day and everyone's like, no, not Danny. And then he's like, okay. And he's released from the hospital and everyone's like, oh, thank God. And yeah. it's pretty much over. Yeah. And it was mild enough for him to not know that anything supernatural was going on for a while. Did he ever learn? He knew the whole time. He knew the whole time. That, that's what he, he reveals. He's like, yeah, it's, it's Beacon Hills. Oh, things right. are things are crazy. Right. Yeah. But he just he just made a, a a very mature decision to be like, I don't need that in my life though. I'm yeah. trying to graduate. <laughs> WWDD. What would Danny do? Yeah. That's right. Exactly. Keep his head down, study hard, and go to a good college somewhere else. That's right. So. That's right. Somewhere with a much lower per capita murder rate. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Gabe, are there uh, any upcoming projects you can tell us about? Oh, yeah. Um, I should uh, start start pimping um, my series that I shot 10 years ago. Uh, it's called 
the Donovan of Civilization. I love it. Go yeah. on. It's um, me and my friend Donovan uh, went to Southeast Asia and China and India and Egypt, just the two of us, and we shot a um, a six half hour episode series um that's like a it's like indiana jones but if indiana jones was afraid of everything uh, <laughs> <laughs> nice so it's that's like fun. a natural archaeological mystery series that we awesome. shot just like the two of us in in like we shot at the pyramids in 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 uh, cairo um just without any permits or anything just like on the sly so it's just it's a lot of it's a lot of that and it's um it's goofy and uh, and funny. And we've been working on it for a long time. It's kind of taken a back burner to a lot of other things, but it's almost done and hoping to get it get it out pretty soon. Nice. Do you know yet where we'll be able to watch it? No, I'd I would like to do that. No idea. I okay. don't. I, I you know, it's one of those things. It's hard to um, say how these things are kind of distributed, but hopefully it'll be on Amazon and you know YouTube and and. Uh, to be and I don't know what else there is. But awesome. I'll well, when you. the yes, thank you. Yes, when the time yeah. comes, make sure we know because we would like to tell yes. everybody about it because exactly. it sounds awesome. Yeah, yeah, it is. Awesome. All right. Well, Gabe, this has been uh, an absolute pleasure talking with yes. you about yeah, Teen Wolf sorry. and and how it all came together with you. And we are very very thankful that uh, you decided to join us today. Of course, yes, thank it was you. so much fun. Thank you for doing this too. I'm sh I'm sure there is going to be a movie because of your work. <laughs> oh, yes, that yes. is that's very I... very kind. Yes, that's exactly how that works. Definitely overestimating our prowess. <laughs> oh, underestimating, I would <laughs> say. Yes, remember it this way, and then it'll be better for you in the future. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's good advice. Good. I like that. I'll yeah. I'll take that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we had a great time talking with Gabe, but now it's back to spoilers. How many times did they do, oh, Derek's dead? Like on the entire show? Uh, probably one more time, at least. There's no one else they fake out being dead that many times. Well, after Derek. all the bullshit he goes through, they're just like, man, after all that, he's got to be dead. Oh, oh, okay. Wow. Uh, good for you, man. Always surprising us. Yeah. <laughs> Poor guy. <laughs> Seriously. Poor dude. Okay, so regarding one of the last scenes in the episode, aren't Deaton and Morel actually siblings or was she speaking figuratively? That is a very good question. I think... I also wondered about that, Kate. Because I can kind of see it going both ways. You know, like, it, it does seem like something that I could see a sister saying to a brother if they're estranged, but I could also see it just meaning kind of like you know you'll you'll hear people be like oh they were like a big brother to me or like a big sister to me like I, I don't think it's that unusual of a phrase to use figuratively either I don't think it's unusual to hear but I think it does imply that they are if not blood related then they are very close you know that they have a they have a relationship that we don't really know about so I think either way that's kind of been confirmed because you don't just say that to somebody well, that, you know. that is true no matter what, because, I mean, it's not like the main characters ever see them having these little conversations. Like, they have a few conversations like this throughout the show where they're talking about the things that are going on in the supernatural world of Beacon Hills. They talk about the main characters, especially Scott. But Scott 
and the others are never actually privy to those conversations. And a lot of times they're talking about things that they don't even really discuss in detail with the kids, you know, like Morel's yeah. going to be, Morel had a scene where she was like, are you going to warn them? Stuff like that. Like really, no matter how it was meant, they definitely have some kind of relationship that we don't have that much visibility on. But yeah. I, I just wasn't sure watching it, whether we were supposed to take it as literally big brother mm-hmm. or fig. I don't mean like 1984 big brother, but like literally her big brother or figuratively a big brother like figure yeah. in her life. Yeah. Team Wolf Wiki believes that they're actual siblings. Okay. I And I couldn't remember if that was something that they had delved more deeply into later, just because frankly, the seasons that I've seen the most would be one, two, and then three B. So I don't have as much of like those close readings yeah. <laughs> of, of uh, the, the other ones quite as much. But yeah, I, I was just curious watching it. Like if, if you guys took it as being literal or figurative. I could see either way. Yeah. I think this is a rewatch podcast, Kate, because you're going to get to watch it all over again. Right, exactly. <laughs> the- you get one of my questions answered when I was reading the Teen Wolf Wiki about she was the one who hired Brayden oh. to save Isaac. Oh, okay. I don't I was like that. I, I was, I was wondering if that meant like in 3A or like when she comes back yeah. and is the in- character of Brayden with a name. Yeah, maybe that's in 4. That it's no. established? No, I no guess it's 3B. established in this season. Oh, is it? She's oh, okay. Hired her. Got yeah. it. Got it. I, don't, I think they, you know, just say she hired the girl to come save her. Got it. Save him. Really, really want to know more about how Morel ended up working with the Alpha Pack. And, you know, Deaton says that thing about her getting in over her head, which makes it seem like she does have a master plan. But I don't remember the details of that. Me either. Guess we'll find out when we rewatch. Yeah. <laughs> Do you guys think this means that Deaton is also French Canadian? Um, I... his name is actually Deaton. <laughs> I guess so, unless they're steps. So who knows? I don't know. Or half or, or halves. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> who knows? That concludes this week's episode of Return to Beacon Hills. We hope you had as much fun listening as we did talking about all things Teen Wolf. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RTBH Podcast and Tumblr and TikTok at Return to Beacon Hills. If you'd like to ask us questions or offer suggestions for future topics to discuss, you can email us at return to Beacon Hills at gmail.com. Join us here next week when we discuss season three, episode six, Motel California. Such an incredible episode. Great episode. Great interviews on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast goodness. Five star reviews, get a shout out. Have a great week and we'll see you again soon on Return to Beacon Hills. Dude, it's Beacon Hills.